As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a prominent member of the council. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body in order that he might bury it in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night, was with Joseph. Together, they took the body of Jesus down from the cross, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth along with a mixture of myrrh and aloes that Nicodemus had brought with him, weighing about 75 pounds. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in, that, in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Joseph placed Jesus in this tomb, which he had cut out of the rock. He then rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Morning, everyone. Welcome this morning. Happy Easter to you. Thanks so much for joining us on this beautiful Sunday morning. Um, Easter, as many of you know who are gathered here this morning, is for we who follow Christ what we believe to be the most important day in history because this is the day when Jesus showed us what the future will look like. The future will be about life, not death. Love, not hate. Forgiving, not holding grudges. Peace, not war. Justice, not oppression. Beauty, not ugliness. And this week of all weeks, many of us are longing to live in just that kind of a world. A world free of terror. A world free of disease. A world free of poverty and addiction. And so Jesus shows us the future. The very first act of this different kind of future is the resurrection. And this morning we're going to look at the resurrection through the eyes of an interesting man named Joseph. And so if you're a kid and you're here, kids, I want to tell you, you guys got a book when you came in, right? And you know what's awesome about this book? Your parents don't have it. They don't even get to buy one, so it's just for you only, right? And there are pictures in this book that I'm going to be talking about. So even as you're kind of looking at the book, you can look at the pictures up here, and the pictures are up here so that your parents can, it'll help them understand the sermon a little bit better. But I'll be talking to you kids as we go through here because we want to learn together about the resurrection. So let's take a minute, we'll pray. And then we'll talk about a very important guy named Joseph. Let's pray. Father, thanks that we can gather within these walls to listen for your voice so that we can learn what it means to be people of hope in our world. I pray that you'd give us understanding. But more than understanding, I pray that you would give us the courage, like Joseph, to live with an act of faith, making room for you so that we can be changed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Two Josephs in the Bible were related to Jesus in a significant way, but there were, there were three Josephs in the Bible. Did you know that, kids? Only three, no more. Uh, there's a Joseph in the Old Testament. He had this fancy coat, right, far left. There's Joseph, the dad of Jesus. He was a carpenter, so he always carries a hammer. That's what carpenters do. And this is Joseph of Arimathea. He's the guy that we're going to talk about this morning, and he lived with this faith in the future in a way. If Joseph had a t-shirt on, it might say, I am from the future. 
And I'm going to explain why as we get in here. So these two Josephs, Joseph the carpenter and Joseph of Arimathea, those two Josephs are very interesting. Uh, the carpenter is poor. The Joseph we look at this morning is rich. The carpenter acquired a manger as a place where Jesus could be born. And this Joseph acquires a tomb where Jesus could be laid to rest after he died. Two Josephs, and the other interesting thing in the Bible, neither of them ever speak in the Bible. So we never hear any words from them. They just do things, which is very interesting. There's a manger in Bethlehem, and there's a tomb in Jerusalem. However, you live in Greenwood. So what does it matter? <laughs> or Ballard, or Green Lake, or Wallingford, or Queen Anne. It matters a great deal, actually. Because this second Joseph makes a space for Jesus, this tomb, and that's where Jesus will be changed. And we need to make space for Jesus too in our own lives because when we make space for Jesus, we also will be changed. So we'll learn from Joseph how to make space for Jesus. And here's the thing, friends. All of us know this. We need change. Because, let's be honest, humans aren't running the world very well right now. Brussels, Paris, Syria, Yemen, Nigeria, human trafficking, North Korea, nuclear threat, addiction, shame, failure, imploding marriages, isolation, fear, anxiety, depression, eating disorders. Do I need to go on? No. It'd be nice if it were different than it is. We need things to change. And the way things change is by making space for Jesus. That's what we'll see this morning. So here's, we'll learn two things, kids. First of all, we're going to discover what the second Joseph did, and then we'll learn what his actions mean. We're going to discover what he did, and we'll learn what his actions mean mean. So here's discovery number one. What did this Joseph do? Well, when we read in the Bible, this is what we learned. After Jesus died, we read this. Joseph went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body in order that he might be buried in accordance with Jewish burial customs, and Pilate ordered that the body be given to him. So there's Joseph of Arimathea, and he's asking Pilate, who's a politician, uh, for the body of Jesus. Now, on the surface of things, it looks like a very simple thing that Joseph did. He bought a tomb for Jesus' body to be buried in, and he asked for the body, and Pilate gave him the body. But when you learn about who Joseph was, you see that actually for Joseph to do this made him a pretty amazing person. Joseph was actually very courageous, and here's why. Joseph belonged to two groups, and in both of these groups, it was not popular to follow Jesus. He was a Roman citizen, and the Romans executed Jesus on a cross. They killed him. And when Romans killed people on their crosses, they wanted people to stay on the crosses for several days so that everyone else would learn, man, if I do something bad, the same thing's going to happen to me. So they didn't like it when people would come along and take bodies down off the crosses. And so for Joseph to go to a Roman uh, po politician and ask him for the body of Jesus, that actually required quite a bit of courage. But Joseph did, he, it's not that he was just a Roman citizen, also Joseph was Jewish. And not just Jewish, but he was a Jewish religious leader. 
And so both of these things, interesting. On the one hand, Joseph was afraid of being called, uh, what we, we would call this, a sympathizer. And you know what a sympathizer is? It's someone who is secretly like uh, liking someone, but they don't want anybody to know. It's kind of like working at Microsoft, but bringing an Apple computer in your briefcase. <laughs> and no, it, like you don't want anyone to see it. Or it's like you play for the Seahawks, but you secretly want the 49ers to win, right? What a terrible thing. And in the Roman Empire, if you were a sympathizer, you secretly liked the enemy, and, and the Romans found out, they'd kill you. So it took a lot of courage to be a sympathizer. Joseph was a sympathizer. And then not only that, because he's Jewish, Joseph had put his faith on the line, but more than his faith, he even put his job on the line because Joseph was a religious leader and the Jewish people to whom he belonged were the people who had the idea to kill Jesus in the first place. And so for, for, for Joseph, he was afraid that if they found out, uh, he might lose his job even. In other words, let's look at Joseph just for a minute. He liked Jesus, we know that. He's called a disciple of Jesus, we know that. But he's a, he's a disciple, and then this is what we read, he's a disciple secretly. I like Jesus, but I'm afraid I don't want other people to know that I like Jesus. I have, a, I have faith, but I also like my reputation. I, I, I want to be courageous, but I like being comfortable. I have answers, I have questions. I'm strong, I'm weak. Even in the Bible it says it this way, I believe, help my, does anyone know? Unbelief. Uh, wait a minute, I have faith and doubt, courage and fear, hope and questions. Who lives like that? You do, <laughs> and I do, and so did Joseph. We believe on Sunday sometimes, but not so much on Monday. We believe in the sanctuary, but not so much in the marketplace. We believe when we're with one group of people, but then with a, with a different group of people, we behave differently. We believe as long as it doesn't affect our money or our job or our reputation or our popularity. There's some of this in Joseph. He believes, but secretly. And there's some of this in us too. And yet, even though he believes secretly, do you know what? He's called a disciple. And the word disciple, kids, do you know what it means? It means someone who follows Jesus. So is Joseph perfect? No, he has all kinds of questions, and yet he's called a disciple. And I really like that he's called a disciple because even though he's not perfect and even though he has questions, God still calls him a follower of Jesus. And that's the way I am. I'm not perfect, I still have questions, but God calls me a follower of Jesus. And this is very good news. Joseph had many questions uh, to which he didn't know the answers. Uh, honestly, uh, he didn't know that Jesus would need to die for his sins. He didn't know what would happen to people who didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't know how the kingdom of God would come about. He had all kinds of questions, and yet he had faith. How much faith? How much faith did Joseph have? And this is the most important thing I'm going to share with you guys this morning. How much faith did Joseph have? A lot of faith or a little bit of faith? And here's the answer. It doesn't matter. A lot of faith or a little faith, it doesn't matter. Why? Because the most important thing isn't how much faith you have. The most important thing is the object of your faith. Let me explain that by telling you guys a story. 
Have any of you kids ever flown on an airplane? You've flown on an airplane? Do you like flying on airplanes? Is it fun? I'll tell you something. Not everybody likes flying on airplanes. Did you know that? There are some people who are actually afraid to fly on airplanes. And I've, I've flown on airplanes a few times. And sometimes I get to fly on what's called a float plane. And it starts in a river and takes off. And then it lands on a, near a little island. In fact, I'm going to go do that this week. Well, one time, I'm sitting in the float plane in the front seat next to the pilot, and there's two more seats in the back for people, and this lady gets on the plane. She's just flown all the way to, from Scotland to Vancouver, British Columbia. She's had a long flight. She's tired. It's, it's in the afternoon. She gets in the plane, and I introduce myself, and, she, and then she tells me her name, and this is what she says. She says, I don't like flying in planes at all. And then she says, and especially not little planes. And then she says, and especially not little float planes. And I said, well, this is your lucky day then. <laughs> because you got to fly in a big plane and a little plane and now a little float plane. Won't that be fun? And then the pilot turns around and he says, you don't have a thing to worry about. So, you know, safety first, dun, 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 dun. And then it, this is the funny part. So here's what happens. We push away from the dock. So now we're out in the middle of the river in a plane. And he goes to start the engine, it wouldn't start. <laughs> the wind is blowing off from the ocean, and we're supposed to be going toward the ocean, but the wind is pushing us back toward the city. Tries again, tries again. We're moving back, floating, floating, floating back. Someone sees us, they're in a little boat. They've got a little motor on their boat. And so they're going to come rescue us, but they couldn't start their engine either. So we watched the guy in his little boat, and he went out, ran, got a new battery, put the new battery in, started, got his boat out, threw a rope to the pilot, pulled us back to the dock. I'm saying to the lady from Scotland, isn't this fun? And she's not having fun for some reason. <laughs> and then uh, the pilot goes, he gets a new battery, puts it in, and says this, I think it's the battery. Starts right up, that's good news. But then we took off and we're flying over the ocean and the plane died. And the pilot looks at me and he smiles and he says, I guess it wasn't the battery. <laughs> it, was, it was the alternator. And so the battery couldn't charge and the battery died and we're up in the air with no power in the plane. And it wasn't too scary, because we, now we were just like a glider, you know, and we landed on the ocean. And then another plane came and rescued us. <laughs> Can you come up here for a minute? He's, the, he's, the, uh, he's me, right? So I'm sitting in the front seat, and this lady's behind me. I'm the lady from Scotland. When the plane dies over the middle of the ocean, this is what she does. <laughs> we're all going to die! That's what she said to me. <laughs> Go ahead and sit down. It was crazy. We landed in the water. But here, what's the point of my story? Here's the, this is a very important story, and here's why. Did the lady from Scotland make it to the island, and did I make it to the island? Yes, we both made it. Uh, did we both have the same amount of faith in the airplane? No, actually, we didn't. I had more faith in her. I was never worried. In fact, when the plane died, I thought, this is fun. I've never been in a glider before. But the point would be that we both got there, why? 
because she also had faith. How much faith? Enough to what? Get in the plane. Because what matters isn't how much faith you have. What matters is where you put your faith. And she put her faith, the little amount she had, in the law of aerodynamics, and it works every time. Little bit of faith, but enough to get in. Joseph had a little bit of faith. Do you have a little bit of faith? God will meet you right there. If you have enough to get into God's story. And so here's an important question. Why, if believing was so risky, would he believe in Jesus? Why would he do that? And here's why. We're told this, that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is actually a great big theme in the Bible. Joseph had a friend named Nicodemus who went to Jesus and asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, what do I have to do to be part of your kingdom? And Jesus said, well, you need to be born again. You need to be born a second time. And Nicodemus says, that's really hard to do. How can you be born a second time? And then Jesus said it again. You actually need to be born a second time if you want to see the kingdom of God. And Joseph understood the kingdom of God as a place very different than the kingdoms of of this world. And Joseph was disappointed with the kingdoms of this world. Joseph was unhappy with kingdoms of power, with kingdoms of money, with kingdoms of politics because he understood by this point in his life that power and money and politics will never bring about world peace. And I think some of you in the room know that right about now as well, don't you? But Joseph wasn't just sad about political power. He was also sad about religious power. He he saw that often religion builds walls rather than bridges. And religion fosters hate and pride rather than love. And so Joseph's thinking was that the only answer would be, we need a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. We need a king that represents totally different values. Love for everyone, not hate or indifference. Bridges, uh, uh, not walls. Peace, not violence. Generosity, not greed. In other words, Joseph was looking for a totally different kind of king and had come to believe that maybe Jesus is just this kind of king, what I call a sort of upside-down kingdom. Because in an upside-down kingdom, the poor and the sick and the weak and the lonely and the people who are old and the people who have failed and the people who have fears, there's a place at the table for everybody because God loves everyone. And God is creating a world in this new kingdom where uh, instead of war, there's peace, and instead of oppression, uh, there's there's, uh, liberation, and instead of injustice, there's justice, and instead of shrapnel in an airport, there's people sitting around a table eating a banquet and laughing and hugging from every nation. That's the, that's the future <laughs> because Jesus is risen from the dead. And in a week like this, God knows it. All of us want that kingdom. But I want you to hear this because it's so important. Just wanting a kingdom of peace does not make a kingdom of peace. How many times now? How many times? Have we gathered in big cities and lit candles? Seattle, 9-11, New York, every year. (laughs) Now Paris, now Brussels, Munich, Istanbul. Candles, Mozart's Requiem, we need more. We need a new king. And the reality is, that unless I'm willing to fully identify with Christ, my longings for peace will always be just that, a longing. It'll never lead to peace. 
So what Joseph does is more than just want peace. Joseph fully identifies with Christ. How? He does the one thing that he can do. He puts the body of Jesus in a tomb to give him a decent burial. It's all he can do, but he does it. And I saw the difference because this brings us, kids, to discovery number two. When Joseph put Jesus in this tomb, what does that actually mean? Well, it's very funny because you think of a tomb as a place of death, but in this case, the tomb became actually a place of new life. And here's how we know that. There's three things that we learn about Joseph putting Jesus in the tomb. Number one, we're told that he put him in the tomb in the evening. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in the Bible, the, the, the day begins not in the morning like it does in our culture. The day always begins when? In the evening. If you go back to Genesis and you look at creation, when God tells the story of creating the world, this is how he tells it. There was evening and morning day one, evening and morning day two, evening and morning day three. The start of the day is the evening. Why is that important? Does anyone know? Don't answer. I'll tell you. <laughs> Here's why. Let me tell you why it's important. It's important because uh, the evening is a time to be restored. And so the beginning of our day is restoration, and then we work. We do it opposite. We work all day in the strength of our own feeble humanity, and then we're wiped out, and we come to Christ. Christ says, come to me and I'll give you rest and restoration, and I'll empower you to serve in this world. So Jesus is placed in the tomb in the evening so that the work of restoration can happen on Jesus' body, and he'll be resurrected. And then here's the second thing. Jesus is in the tomb on the Sabbath, and do you know what the Sabbath means? The Sabbath means rest, and it means this. When we enter into Sabbath, it says that this is the day that we rest from our works. And can Jesus raise himself from the dead? No. Do you know why? Because, hello, he's dead. Jesus can't raise himself from the dead. He needs someone else to do it for him, and God the Father actually does that for him. So when Jesus can do nothing, God intervenes and gives him a new life. And by the way, when you can do nothing in the dead places of your life, God intervenes and gives you new life. The dead place of your sexuality, the dead place of your marriage, the dead place of your vocation, the dead place of, uh, of, your, of your boredom or your bitterness or your failure or your fear. God meets you right there and only God can bring life, but it requires us to put Christ in the dead place so that new life can come. And that's what God does and that's the hope of Easter. And then here's the third thing that's so interesting about this particular tomb. This tomb was a garden. So evening and morning, like it, it begins with restoration. Sabbath, it's God who does the work. And third, this tomb is a garden. And gardens are not places of death. Gardens are places of what? Life. Don't you love that? The tomb's a place uh, where there was more life than death because the tomb was a garden. So let's look what happened. Read Mark 16 with me just for a second. Very early on Sunday morning as the sun rose, they went back to the tomb and they worried out loud to each other, who will roll back the stone from the tomb? And then they looked up, they saw it had been rolled back and there was a huge stone and they walked right in and they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed all in white. They were completely taken aback. They were astonished. And he said, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, the one who they nailed to the cross. He's been raised up. He's here no longer. You can see for yourselves, this place is empty. And Jesus is risen from the dead. The place where Joseph put Jesus became the place of Jesus' second birth. Birth number one, the manger. Birth number two, the tomb. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? 
you must be born again. Who was born again in the tomb? Christ, right? Christ. That's good news. And so we celebrate that, but we want to do more than celebrate. We need to do what Joseph did. We need to become people from the future. We need to make space for Jesus. Some of you in the room have already done this. Most of you probably. But some of you have never done this. I'm not saying you're not religious. I'm saying you've never acknowledged that your life in total is a tomb. That you don't have what it takes to live the life for which you were created. You haven't acknowledged it yet. That's the gospel. Jesus isn't asking you to live the Christian life. He never said you could. <laughs> He's asking you to make space for Christ, who now in his resurrection glory will indwell you and enable you to be the person you could never be on your own, all that God had in mind when he made you. You know how you do that this morning? It's simple. With open hands, you, you pray this way. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you can live the Christian life in me. I invite you. Take the dead space that is my life and make it live. That'll make it a special Easter. And then some of us have already done that, but there are still little dead places in our lives. For some, it's a dead place of a hidden addiction. For others, it's the dead space of cynicism. For others, it's fear or, 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 or greed or, or, or cynicism or complacency or boredom or anxiety. And we can take that place where we feel like we can, we've never yet been transformed and we can say, Jesus, I want to I now put you in the dead space of my financial life, the dead space of my marriage struggle, the dead space of my fear. I want to put you there and watch Easter happen so that even there I can be from the future. Do you have a dead space this morning? I bet some of you do. Christ can make it new. This isn't about eggs. And flowers, as good as they are, this is about becoming new people because one who conquered death wants to live in us. Don't leave here with dead spaces this morning. Let Easter happen in you. If I could, I'd give you all a t-shirt that says what? I am from the future. In a world needing hope, may we be people of hope. Amen? Father, thank you for Easter. Without it, the grave is full, not empty. And if the grave is full, we are empty. Seeking to live a life on our own that we're incapable of living. I pray, Father, that you would speak to each of us now in this time of response that no one would leave here with a dead space in their heart. Some needing to turn to you for the very first time, others needing to specifically give you a dead space and invite you to be the God of the resurrection in that space. Give us responsive hearts now we pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, we, have, we will have up here in a minute some prayer team members and we've got Bibles for those who've never heard the gospel or need the Bible and I've written a little book called God's Story about what it means to be a person of hope and live life in Christ. And if you need one of those or one for a friend, you can come get those from prayer team members. You can also pray with a prayer team member about kind of the dead spaces in your own heart or you can write in our prayer books. So let's use this as a time of response so that Easter is more than eggs. Easter is new life in you.
Let's worship together.